<laughs> I can relax when I die. You know, right now, I love what I do, and uh, I tell everybody, I tell them, when you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, and that's still a hobby to me. It's a curious thing how a name stands out in the golf industry. It's not easy. It is a very, very crowded market. The industry is Americanized now, and really it has been for a long time. Every popular product is copied, imitated, and strung out to its peak marketability. It makes standing out in the industry really difficult. Which driver is the best? Which wedges are the best? How are they even different? Is this putter better for me than it might be for my father or my brother? What's the difference between the Titleist Pro V1 and the TaylorMade Tour Preferred and the Kirkland Signature Ball from Costco? With such a defined audience of customers, standing out in this flooded market is inherently difficult. It's even something that affects us here at Golf.com. Once in a while, though, a brand does stick out for reasons only specific to that product. It could be the price, the appearance, or any number of things. But it is most likely that in this space where improvement is universally the shared goal, the quality of performance is how a brand generally sticks out. In the case of wedges, those highly lofted clubs that help us make birdies more than just about any other club in the bag, it's not so much a brand that sticks out as it is a name that sticks out. That name, for the sake of this podcast, is Vokey. Vokey Wedges. Vokey is a brand owned by the parent company of Titleist. That's called Akushnet. Now that introduction really says enough on its own, but beyond that, Vokey is a name that sits on its own against golf industry behemoths like TaylorMade, Callaway, PXG, and others. That's a bit ironic because, at one point, Vokey could have been a tailor-made brand. It could have been a lot of things. I'll explain that all later. But first and foremost, the story of Vokey Wedges begins with its namesake and its master craftsman. That's Bob Vokey. And today, we'll explain his story. It's a long one, here on the Golf.com podcast. Now, Bob Vokey grew up in Verdun, a blue-collar-centric borough of Montreal, Canada. He was born in July 1939, which makes him 78, going on 79. The more you hear about him, the more that age will impress you. But in that blue-collar borough, Vok, as he's commonly referred to in the industry, he grew up in a blue-collar household as well. His father was a tool and dye maker. They lived in a three-story tenement house, humble beginnings by any measure of the phrase. He played all the sports growing up. His dad was an avid and good golfer, but baseball was Bob Vokey's sport. When he wasn't playing sports with his friends, he was working in his dad's shop, learning a lot about hand tools, getting familiar and comfortable in the trade, a future his dad really wasn't yeah. crazy about. Uh, my dad, you know, he was a, a tool and die maker. He had a machine shop where I used to work my summers in a machine shop with him. And uh, I realized all that particular time I couldn't. He gave me all the bad jobs to do, you know, and uh, I didn't realize at that particular time what he was doing. He just wanted me to get back to school. I wanted to quit and become a machinist at that particular time because, you know, I was learning a heck of a lot about about materials and working on metals and things like that. And I learned how to measure. And and it was pretty pretty neat, 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 neat upright in that respect. I never realized it would come to me many years later, be able to use of it. But I... I now, despite his father's best efforts, Bob was just a get-your-hands-dirty kind of guy. He loved using tools to their full efficiency, crafting and adjusting things with his bare hands. He knew, even before high school started, that he wanted to be a machinist. He wasn't cut out for college. At least he didn't think so. He didn't have much money, and he knew college cost money, so he didn't go to college. 
He'd live in Montreal until he was 26 years old. Montreal and Canada was all he ever really knew. But he was feeling an inner pull to leave and branch out. He chose California to work at General Telephone, a phone company, for numerous reasons. Get out of the snow, and I never, I never thought... It was one of those, I'm going to go down and just see what happens, sort of thing. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I end up staying. You know, and you know, part of the reason was it was it was a girl I went with a, um, a French Canadian lady, and she came across. She was down here at the time, so I came across just partly to see her too. You know, and and have some fun. Next thing you know, boom! I got smitten. <laughs> I stayed, not because of not with the girl, and she left and went back to Canada. But I I stayed right there, and I and I said, wow, I I like it down here. I was playing playing uh, softball and fast pitch. You know, and all I loved it. Then I, when I went into golf, it was oh, I was totally smitten. You know, I just oh, I put all my energies into it, tried to do the, be the best. Those last know. few quotes add a lot of intrigue to the Bob Vokey story. First, he went to California to be with a lady friend, a lady friend who eventually left and went back to Canada. He did it with a job in mind at a phone company, and eventually, only eventually, did he become smitten by the world of golf. Maybe it's just funny to me, but I wholly expected that the 78-year-old king at the top of the wedge world would have been golf crazy from the day he was born. Nope, not until his late 20s did he actually get serious about the game. In very much the same way that golf once bit you or me or any of our golf-loving friends, the actual act of competing on the course bit Bob Vokey once he arrived in California. He got serious about playing the game, he got serious about practicing the game, and he even began competing in tournaments. I always thought I could play, so I started to try to play little mini-tournaments. And uh, as I was working at the time, even at the at the telephone company at that time, and so I tried to play golf and do that. And I realized when I was out there on par fives, you know, and these little little call it they had the tournaments out here in California, you know, goes one called the Western Golf Tour, and I try, I'm hitting I'm hitting uh, three woods in, you know, on par fives, and these guys are hitting irons in. And I said, wait a second, there's got to be another way. This is not going to catch it. So I realized pretty quick that I couldn't play the game, you know. Now, he couldn't necessarily play the game on a high, competitive level. But then what? Bob Vokey was legitimately becoming obsessed with golf in the same way that many competitive people do. As agitating as it surely was for him to fail hitting golf clubs, golf addicts don't fail and just leave it at that. They stay near the game in some manner or another. It's a difficult one to get away from. Play golf yourself long enough, and you'll have at least two or three times where you said you were going to quit this thing altogether. Plus, in Bob Vokey's case, working at a telephone company was just a job to have a job. It was not riveting by any means. So at this point, Bob Vokey doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. He left Canada, fell in love with golf, fell in love with California, loved that weather. But what was his direction, or where was he going? It's hard to say he really had any direction, but if you rewind just a few years, there are those lessons his dad was trying to teach him. Basically, that the tool and die trade is hard and you need to school up elsewhere to have an easier way of life. Bob didn't listen to those specific directions, but he was listening. He was following along. You see, Bob Vokey's dad used to fool around with golf clubs in his own shop. That was back in the day where Woods, the longest club in the bag, were actually made of wood, not metal like they are today. When a wood would, he used to take the back of the wood, and never forget that, and then he would put little different holes all the way across the back of the wood, moving the... And I realized what he was doing. He was moving the CG back, and he put in these lead. Putting the CG back, that's center of gravity. He was putting the center of gravity back within the club head, 
to create a club head that had a higher launch, that would send balls higher into the air, regardless of the facing. Ports across the water. I didn't, you know, I knew what he was trying to do. You know, he was trying to get the weight back a little bit. And I thought, all right, so, you know, get get it airborne, different things like that. And we do, we used to tinker around, I remember years ago, and he'd tinker around with different inserts, you know, maybe put in like a, what you know, call the graphite. Like a lot of things, like all types of metals, to see how they'd react and how the club would thereby function. Through this, you've got Bob Vokey taking mental notes. He didn't have much golf work experience, but he did have an undying obsession for the game, and now a decent idea of how the science behind clubs worked. No, he did not take Physics 101, but I guess you could call this Metals 101, with his father as an accidental professor. It wasn't surprising then when Bob soon found himself working for minimum wage at a golf club repair shop. It was called Sid's Custom Repair in Anaheim, California. Sid Eyed was the name of the owner and the man who became Vokey's second quasi-professor. Woodwoods, you know, how at that time we were finished woodwoods and reshaft, any reshafting, you know, and irons and adjust lies, lofts, grips, anything that you have basic, basic needs that you had to do, repair faces, inserts, you know, at that time they had these, they had like uh, plastic and fiber inserts. Sometimes we'd have to, plastic would crack, we'd have to pull it out and put in a new plastic, or we'd turn around and we'd put a dam of, of, of like a putty around it, and we'd pour in a new, a new, uh, you know, insert right in there, and a epoxy insert. It was, it was just the way we did it back then. And I learned all that working in this golf shop for about a couple, couple of years, and then I left that and went down and moved to uh, Fallbrook and opened up my own golf shop in 1986. Now Bob worked for Sid for years. It wasn't easy work, but it fascinated him. In the end, if you're fascinated by your line of work. For some people, that's all they need. It was all Bob Vokey needed. And if it isn't clear by now, he loved working on woods. He loved adding inserts, just like his dad used to tinker around back in Canada. He loved making them smooth with a router, reshafting them to make them stronger, surer equipment, grinding, welding, anything you could do to a club in a shop. Sadly for that shop, while Bob was employed, Sid passed away, and Bob soon left. Working for minimum wage, despite loving the work and loving Sid, and loving all that he was doing, it proved a bit taxing. He remembers the grind fondly, now that he has come a long way. But back then, he drove a tiny green compact Datsun B210. That was his car, and he still remembers it, but he remembers how tiny it was. And remembers that it was a bit dated at the time. He remembers crashing on couches of friends. He remembers eating his fair share of jack-in-the-box. And when he didn't have money for jack-in-the-box, he picked his teeth for a meal, as he likes to joke about now. Obviously, though, Vokey had desires on a bigger and better venture. So in 1976, he opened his own shop, and he aptly named it Bob's Custom Golf Shop. It was located about 70 miles south of Anaheim, conveniently tucked inland from Carlsbad, California, the modern-day Silicon Valley equivalent for the golf equipment industry. To own your own shop is great, right? That's a great step. And it was a perfectly natural step for Vokey. Kind of like being an associate at a law firm, and after a few years, deciding that you'd like to branch out and make your own firm elsewhere. Don't let that analogy fool you, though. It's not like Vokey was rolling in the money. The shop was small, only 1,200 square feet. That's really small. It was nestled on the property at Fallbrook Country Club. Less than glamorous, that's for sure. But he loved the challenge. He always loved the challenge. And I like the fact that I was doing it for myself. A lot of hours, a lot of work for the little that you did make in repairing golf clubs. 
And that's when I, I yeah, but it gave me enough time to learn enough about the business, about golf clubs. I call manufacturers and I call people of company of, of different polyurethanes, you know, for, for finishing woodwoods at that particular time. And they'd give me the information. And I just, I thought it was a heck of a challenge. I got to be in North County. I got to be name reputated. Hey, you got to get your club fixed. Take it over to the golf master. <laughs> That's, you know, Bob, see, go see Bob. I, that was pretty good. I was busy, but, you know, I work, and work every day, Saturdays nights, and sometimes a sleeping bag, I'd put it in my golf shop <laughs> and sleep right in the shop. And keep on going. I remember people telling me, did they go by? they go by shop. By and in the most ironic of fates, his father actually moved down from Canada and began working for him. That was the case for a number of years as Bob continued to refine his trade. He was making his way, and the shop's popularity was growing, slowly but surely, as it became very clear across the country the San Diego-Carlsbad area was going to become a golf haven. This fact was so well known across the country that a guy named Gary Adams took notice back in northern Illinois. It was 1979. Adams had just recently founded a little company. It had three total employees and really just one product. That company was named TaylorMade. That one product was a 12-degree wood, which wasn't a novelty, but it did have a novel design. It was not made of wood. It was made of metal, the first metal wood on the golf market. And Adams was out there to spread the word around the country. He wanted to convince golf pros to hit his new clubs. They would sound different. They'd feel different, that's for sure. He also wanted to get someone in California involved in repairing these clubs. Bob Vokey was less than enthused. Gary Adams, at that time he was still located back in McHenry, Illinois. He had these prototype metalwoods. He came into my golf shop, and I he came with a golf pro I knew. Who, who, he asked his golf pro, you know anybody? Oh, yeah, Bob over at the golf master. He can, he can put those shafts in your metalwoods and weight them for you. And everybody said, okay. So he, wa- he walked in the door with these maybe 10 clubs, you know, and I looked at them and I said, God, Gordy, you quit to go and work for a driving range? Got somebody selling driving range clubs? They'll never make it. They're never going to replace persimmon. And at that time, I was refinishing a bunch of persimmon woods, and I pointed to all these beautiful persimmon woods, and they'll never, ever replace that. <laughs> Little did I know that they were take over the, take over the golfing industry. Well, they did, but it took time. Metalwoods grew in popularity as a viable replacement for persimmon woods. It was slow and steady. Gary Williams offered Bob Vokey a job back then, back in January 1980. And Vokey was obviously reluctant, as you can easily tell. He wasn't ready to just ditch his business on a whim. No. Instead, he left the golf club location and moved closer to Carlsbad, to Vista, California, reopening under the savvy name Golf Master. And as so-called golf master, Vokey continued to work on persimmon woods. But he also applied his trade to the metal clubs that Adams would bring him from TaylorMade. And not long after TaylorMade made the jump to the golf equipment capital of the world, they offered Vokey a full-time position again. This time he took it. So, right now, where exactly are we with Bob Vokey? It's 1986. He's been living in California now for more than 20 years. He's now working for a burgeoning equipment brand, and he's helping call the shots on Metalwoods. He's helping develop the products, and most importantly, he's doing so while spending a good amount of time out there around PGA Tour Just players. Grab on, grab on the ship and keep on going, you know. And it went, went really well. Every club that went out on tour uh, went through my, my department. So it was pretty, I was pretty, pretty proud of that accomplishment. But then and meanwhile, I was meeting all these tour players. Lee Trevino, uh, Marco Mayer, Freddie Funk, Dave Stockton Sr., 
uh, Moore Sotowski, Billy Glasson. But I learned everything from all of them. I just kept listening, you know, and taking notes. And they'd want a different flight. They'd hit the ball. All of a sudden, it's going. So I, so I would turn around, and at that particular time, as I said, you, you, you couldn't adjust metal woods by, you know what they do now? They have the adjustments, shaft adjustments, you know, face angle adjustments in all metal woods now. Everybody has it. The ball's leaving a little right, so you you want to close the face a little bit, bring the toe back in, so you're going to bring the flight. So a player would do that. The way I did it, I did it with a I had two ways. I used to do it over my knee, bend the shaft a little bit to put a little hook in the face, you know, or then I had a... I developed this aluminum block and it went a hole in it. And I had that out there and I put it in the vise. I put the wrap the face of the club when in this like a like a towel or anything like that and stick it in there, wedge it in there, and then I had this little little lever, like it's a little it's same similar to what you just the line off of of irons for. And I used to be able to bend the bend the hosel. You can bend a little bit, you know, and basically what I did. And we put the face angle on that way. And then Rob really got hurt, then all of a sudden later years, titanium came in, and you had a little trouble bending titanium. But when you're bending, what Garrett played, they were made of 431 stainless, you were able to bend it. It was, you know, it was just that's the way we did things back then. Did you catch that? Bob Vokey was fixing golf clubs to players' preferences by either bending them over his knee or by sticking the club into a metal block, a contraption that he had made, literally out there on the driving range to adjust the hosel by mere degrees. So much for this equipment industry being a particular science back in the mid to late 80s. What's missing from this story and all the optimism that surrounded TaylorMade and Vokey at the time is the context that Gary Adams had sold TaylorMade to Solomon Group. This was a French sports equipment company back in 1984. The move would help TaylorMade continue to grow as a young company, and it didn't really affect Vokey until it did. That it was in front of me. And, and the reason I left at that particular time, Solomon had a little different way of doing business than I call it, we wanted to do it. You know, they had their own ways. They wanted to do a lot of different things. They, in fact, they even did a metal one later on after I left. That was a big failure. They wanted to, they wanted to do things their way. They were, they were a French company at that particular time, and, and, and uh, we saw it, Gary. They gave, they gave Gary a window seat, basically. You know, so he left and he's got new, new That's how the late 80s ended for Gary Adams and Bob Vokey, two men who deeply loved what they did and what they were able to make for the best golfers in the world. But it didn't crush them. They knew their industry well. They knew that they were great at it. Gary had created a new industry leader while living in a town of less than 10,000 people. Bob had become the right-hand man for the development of products. Keep the two together and do what? Make a new equipment company? I guess that was the move. This move away from TaylorMade, that wasn't a big deal, though, because Gary was able to assemble a brand new team with some financial backing. In this case, Vokey was also going to get his own percentage of the company. It was called Founders Club. Things looked good for him at Founders Club. He would help design the clubs. He'd work the clubs into relevancy with tour players. If all went well, he'd be striking it rich as a part owner. It's just that all did not go well. And honestly, to this day, he doesn't really enjoy talking about it. And just one of the biggest disappointments of my life was that. I would say it right there in the business. That was a tough one. I, I, it was it's one of those things that, you know, you, you have a dream that, uh, oh, it's fun. I have a house right here by Aviera. It's a big golf course, and, and a cup I beside it. I said, I'm going to buy this house beside it back in 1989. And then all of a sudden I get the 
this piece of action in 1991. I said, great, I'm going to be able to move <laughs> into Aviera, <laughs> the high-rent district, And I, after becoming a, a partial owner of a golf club company. And it didn't happen, you know. We didn't, we didn't succeed due to different, different problems. And it wasn't because of product. <laughs> I know that because I was involved in the product. I did everything there. Anything that you pinpointed to? Is it the market or anything? Uh, not so much the market that particular time. I would say it's it's the philosophies, you know, internal philosophies. Uh, that's the only thing I could say, you know. Okay. Just uh, and you know, it's, it took takes a little bit of money to in this business, you know. And I think there were some problems going on there. It does take a lot of money to succeed in golf. Whether you're a golf company, a golf course, a golf focused magazine, golf dot com. You name it. From the sounds of it, at least according to Bob, Founders Club just didn't have the right amount of money, ideology, whatever, to make a sustained dent in the industry. After five years, Vokey's partial ownership of the brand wasn't worth much, if anything at all. But Bob was kind of like a good quarterback. Maybe he wasn't a franchise quarterback. Maybe he wasn't an MVP, but he was solid, and he wasn't going to be a free agent for long. The game was still growing in popularity. He was well-connected and had a strong reputation out in the equipment hub of the world. So, to no surprise, in 1996, after he had been beaten down trying to make products with limited investment, he gleefully joined the staff at Titleist. There would be no funding issues there. Titleist had long been one of the biggest, if not the biggest, club manufacturer in the world. His first task was assisting on the development of the 975D driver. That club became wildly successful. It was also the driver that Tiger Woods used in 2000 during one of the most dominant seasons of the history of the game. Yes, that's a little side note. So, if you're wondering, when will we ever get to the wedges part? You should be able to tell we're getting closer. Titleist had really figured out the driver industry, or at least where it was going. They already had Tiger and countless others playing their fairway woods. Their forged irons were extremely popular. As for the putters, Titleist had just recently started doing business with this up-and-comer named Scotty Cameron which is now one of the biggest putter companies in the world. So if they're going to make any other moves, what was left? And he said to me, well, Mr. Uline wants to get into wedges. That's Wally Uline, former CEO and president of Titleist. I was for wedges because I was a craftsman my whole life, and Terry saw that. And they wanted to get into wedges, and we all sat in the room, and who's going to do wedges? And I said, hey, I love it. You know, basically how it, how it all started. You know, he, he didn't specifically bring me over for wedges, but I knew in the back of his mind as he wanted, he saw, he saw the market there too. When I come over, we discussed it and then we brought a vote to it and I volunteered to take the project because I was a craftsman and, and Terry knew the particular time because he, I was always... So that was that. Eager for another job, another challenge, Vokey took on the wedge opportunity at Titleist and hit the ground running. I had... I knew what I had in mind. I knew I had certain models that I liked, certain models that, that I know that good players liked, and I know, and I just took those models and made prototypes from them. The old-fashioned way, now we do everything. That word prototype is important here. There are all kinds of golf clubs manufactured by all kinds of companies out there on the PGA Tour. That's how it was 20 years ago. That's how it is now. And most of them are similar to the clubs you could buy tomorrow afternoon at Dick's Sporting Goods or your local pro shop. Some of them, though, are prototypes. Clubs that companies are working on refining for play, refining for amateur use, for professional use, for competitive use. Vokey, the master craftsman, he was in charge of creating prototypes to test with players. 
Now, it's worth remembering this was not the time of CAD machines. We use CAD machines today and design everything on a computer. Back in the 90s, things like this were done by hand, by the hands of Bob Vokey, with a grinding machine and far too many mistakes and rough drafts. Vokey began the design of his first prototype in September of 1996. It was him and one toolmaker working on the design, months and months of that duo working on a new product, trying to bring that new product to market to the PGA Tour under the name of Titleist. Months and months. Eight or nine months, to be more exact. Every time you bring a product out, you got to take it out prototype-wise, and you got to get your... You get the R&D department involved now, and I got I got assistance now. I got that I can do that, and I used to just just uh, it was like a little baby. <laughs> Me, I still even till today I still before we release a product, it's it's tough to take it out of your hands. You know, once you got it and it's ready, it's it's tough to let your baby go out and walk, be by himself. You know, and that's what I say. I take pride in every product that I do, and that it's my little baby, and I worry about it that it's going to be successful in this world. You know. Bob Vokey did not have to worry long, though. Nine months after starting out on his wedge product, Vokey found himself at the FedEx St. Jude Classic in Memphis, Tennessee. He was doing what he typically did, talk to PGA Tour players, listen to what they're looking for, even show them a new product that he's been working on. I had the 400 series and 200 series in my bag out at St. Jude's, and, and Andy Bean come by and picked up the uh, a four, one of the 400 series 56, and he put it in play, and... and uh, and I said, God, I have one of my prototypes, Andy. So I made a call in and got the okay from him, the head of R&D, and we, and tour promotions, and we let him play with it. So I would have been back, back in, so that's 20 years That ago. seems pretty harmless, right? As Vokey already knew, players on tour value their wedges just as much as any club in their bag, and possibly even more. Remember, wedges are the ultimate get-out-of-trouble club. They can save you from the sand or save you from a hazard. Do yourself a favor, YouTube search Phil Mickelson, and that's literally all you need to see. And from the fairway, they are the instruments in which the PGA Tour's best play this weekly game of throwing darts at a flag. In other words, it's really good to be the go-to wedge guy. Well, that prototype that Andy Bean stole from Vokey now had its first customer. Vokey then took that design, he spent more and more months refining it as more and more players caught wind of another available club from Titleist. Soon enough, the design was finished in 1998, and the first Vokey wedges were offered to the public in 1999. This back and forth between designing, listening, offering it to players for competition, that became the standard for how Vokey wedges were made. So I have good people in place right now to take to take care of me. But you know, I, I always said I had the best R&D department in the in the world. I got the PGA Tour. You know, whatever they want, that's what I do. That's how I got. So I got started. I went out and. I say I like to take credit, but there's some of it I can take credit of getting the work done. But I just looked at what they wanted, and I, for some unknown reason, I had the ability to take a little bit of heel relief off, take a little toe, a trailing edge, whatever they needed. And if one player asked me for it again, and I, and I'd say, well, there we go. Let's, I'd make some prototypes, and everybody would hit them, and away we go from there. And that would just, we just, we would just take off. And and if if enough players asked for that particular type of wedge, we'd put it in the line. By in the line, he means in the starting lineup, in Titleist's starting lineup of wedges, which are offered to the public and, most obviously, the best players in the world. That R&D department of tour players are pretty close, remember. They tend to know what's working for one player at that level could probably work for them, too. Remember that Tiger Woods season in 2000 that I referenced earlier? Yeah, he wasn't just using that Titleist driver that Bob Vokey was involved in or the Titleist 3-wood. 
He was also using Vokey prototype wedges to pick apart Augusta National, Pebble Beach, St. Andrews, and Valhalla. Like I said, one of, if not the greatest season on the PGA Tour in its history. A couple years later, in 2003, Bob Vokey is approached by a player looking to get more spin on his ball. Vokey went back into the shop, tried cutting a finer groove into the club. He wanted the groove wall to be sharper. Surely that would increase spin. Well, it did. Surprise, surprise. A few other players asked about it and Vokey approached the Titleist R&D department. Soon enough, the spin-milled wedge was another product brought to the tour by Titleist. Succeeding just once in creating a product that is adored by the best players in the world, that'll help you catch on in no time. Succeeding multiple times, well, now you're starting to build some legend. That's exactly what happened to Titleist and Vokey in the 2000s. Following almost the exact footsteps of the Scotty Cameron putter, Titleist continued pumping out Vokey wedges. And on a rather consistent basis, starting in 2004 moving forward, Vokey wedges became the dominant wedge on the PGA Tour, often being used by nearly 40% of tour players from week to week. That's not just one wedge, mind you, but multiple. We're talking sand wedges, lob wedges, and gap wedges. And ever since, every Titleist wedge that has been successfully taken to the market has had either Vokey's name on it or his initials stamped on the back of the club. You could easily call that a crowning achievement for a man who joined the brand at age 57. That spin-milled breakthrough in design back in 03, it's really stuck with the Vokey Wedge for more than a decade now. The SM6 Vokey Wedge, which stands for Spin-Milled 6, it dominated the tour in 2016. The SM7, the newest design on Bob Vokey's Frontier, has already been played by numerous tour players in competition back in the fall. And you will not have to wait long to see it, it's set to reach the public later this year. And for as much as Bob Vokey has always seemed to focus on the former in this equation, that being the tour player, he now gets a great joy out of his interactions with common folk uh, you know, like you I, and me. I love that too, but I like it when I, when I, when I, uh, my favorite thing I best, what really make motivates me, is when I'm at a tournament and I have this hat. It says Volk in the back, and I, somebody in the audience, I'll walk by and they'll recognize by a picture or I've been on TV or something. They'll say, "Mr. Volky, Mr. Volky," said, "Boy, I want to appreciate. Thank you for thank you for making those wedges. It's really improved my game." I not, you know. That, that turns me on. <laughs> it really turns me on. I feel that I can improve somebody's game, make them happy, make the game a little bit more enjoyable for them. That's what I love. That's my mission in life. That's awesome. My mission why I'm here. And in case you're curious, Bob Vokey is not ending that mission anytime soon. Sure, he does not need to hand-grind wedges for picky tour players anymore. He doesn't need to bend shafts over his knee or take down notepad after notepad of suggestions and requests. He has assistants and computers to do a lot of that work for him now, but that doesn't mean that he's distant from the process. It is his name, after all, his legacy in many ways. He still consults with the staff and tour pros. He still peers over the CAD machine and its operators as Vokey wedges are cut to perfection. Just last year, he toured around the world doing roadshows in France, Sweden, Germany, his focus now is on advising the common player toward being fit for wedges and making sure those wedges, the equipment, is properly tuned for the varying swings that you could find on any driving range anywhere. He's very much into letting the science of your swing be matched perfectly with that equipment. And now at 78, he sees it as a redefined purpose for the remaining years of his career. Once you explain it to them, it's so very important. People don't understand. A lot of people don't even know what bounce is, how important it is the right type of bounce, you know, and, and, and once it's explained to them, that helps them deliver the club back to the ball. 
they start, I say, hey, don't think of the leading edge so much. You'll start digging. And they just shaft leans forward, and that where it takes the bounce off. Because you know you're getting fat shots. I say, hey, think of the trailing edge. You know, that's what hits the ball, basically. That's what keeps the club moving forward. And all little things like that. And it's like all of a sudden a light will go off in their, in their head. And you know, I call it, you hear me, when you work with a player, and even a tour player, or a, and I call it an avid golfer. They're going to say, all of a sudden, you see that smile on their face. It's like, I call, you know, I call it the aha moment. When I see that little smile, I go, uh-huh. I think we got through. It's uh, it, it's really enjoyable. That's why I'm still doing it, even at my age. I love love doing it. I love working with it. And I'm learning the whole time. I learn stuff. I learn lot. I work with the best players in the world. I like to say. So that's it. That's the story of Vokey Wedges. That's the story of Bob Vokey. Now... If we want to describe the way that Vokey name took over and how that name stands out in the golf industry, in that crowded, Americanized market, if we want to describe that as an avalanche, a 15 to 20 year avalanche, then Andy Bean grabbing the wedge out of Bob Vokey's bag at the 97 St. Jude Classic, that's obviously the snowflake that started the avalanche. And for all intents and purposes, that's luck. That is lucky. But it's funny how luck works. One of my favorite journalism professors spent some time talking about luck once during class. He said the very best journalists are lucky. Sure, but that's because they make their own luck. They force themselves into opportunities where success and failure are probably equal, or even more tilted towards failure. They make themselves make choices instead of having choices made for them. They are lucky, yes, but they make that luck happen through one means or another, which is what I think happened to Bob Vokey. The story of Vokey Wedges, for how a specific name can become synonymous with the highest level of class in equipment, is about made luck. Making luck. Could Bob Vokey have become lucky working with his dad in Montreal? Maybe. He decided to chase a passion to California. Could he have stuck it out working at a phone company? Sure, but he chased a golf dream instead. Could he have become well-connected just working at a golf club? Possibly but he used all his teachings from his dad, from Sid himself, and all his lessons from phone calls with manufacturers, from his time talking with tour players. He really seemed to combine bits and pieces of decisions and lessons along the way. And when offered the opportunity to voluntarily put his head on the chopping block with a new wedge venture at Titleist, he looked at himself. He looked at himself and said, I am a master craftsman. He jumped at the idea. He worked his tail off. He gained trust, and he even stamped his name on it. And to this day, he continues to reap the benefits from it. You could say he got lucky. He might even agree with you. But he definitely made his luck.